is a moral call right here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. I am Benjamin Day. And I'm Stephanie Nakajima. And this is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs health care. Today we have a really special guest, Professor Gerald Friedman, here known as Jerry. Um, last night, Jerry debated Sally Pipes, the CEO of Pacific Research Institute, uh, and known, well-known uh, and well-cited single-payer opponent um, at the SoHo Forum on the question of whether the COVID-19 pandemic makes it all the more urgent for the U.S. to install a system of Medicare for all. And I would say he killed it. Jerry, didn't you kill it? <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> um, as the conversation turned out, COVID was mostly used as a hook, you know, to return to this sort of longstanding debate that we're having over Medicare for all. I think uh, other libertarian think tanks have also done sort of the same question um, and also invited Sally Pipes. She's sort of like a recurring figure. So it was really interesting to me because, uh, you know, as Medicare for all has has really picked up steam since Bernie Sanders' run in 2016 or 2015, um, we've been, you know, really focused on dis dissecting and debunking uh, the center-left arguments against Medicare for All that have really sort of cropped up with the new, you know, enthusiasm for Medicare for All over the past couple of years. Um, and so we've actually really stopped addressing uh, right-wing arguments, you know, for the time being as, as we focus on organizing Democrats. Um, and so, uh, Jerry, you know, it was interesting for me to see, uh, you know, a, an argument or a conversation with a, a true sort of free market opponent of single payer health care. And so I just want to, you know, kick things off by asking which of these like conservative or more free market arguments against single payer health care do you find to be the most compelling? Well, the most compelling, as long as we leave the most in because none of them are very compelling. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you come down to it, uh, their arguments are really based on a fantasy theory where a free market could happen in healthcare, which is wrong, mm. uh, but free market competition in healthcare would promote efficient delivery of services and only the services that people want. Um, it, these arguments make no allowance for people who can't afford it, people who lack information for the public benefit that we all get when other people get health care. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, as an economist, I love studying free market economics. It's fun. When I was young, I used to play chess. It's analogous. And it has about as much to do with the real economy as chess has to do with modern warfare. Nothing. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't find the arguments compelling, but the most compelling, I guess, would be that, you know, well, maybe you'd get some more efficiency, you know, um, if mm -hmm. hospitals had more pressure to find ways to deliver health care better. 
but I don't I don't think that really it w- would really work that way. So it's not yeah, a very sometimes I think that they keep bringing Sally Pipes back because I can't find anyone else to make this argument. Um, but Jerry, I mean, she's making ultimately an economics argument against Medicare for all and for uh, a pure kind of market based system in healthcare. Um, is there any chunk of the economics profession that actually believes a free market works in healthcare, or is she really just a total fringe element here? I think she's pretty much on the fringe. There is um, a strong feeling among economists, most of whom are brought up in this free market uh, fantasy. Um, uh, but there is a strong feeling that, oh my God, if we made healthcare free at the point of service, doing away with copays and deductibles, there would be some gigantic increase in demand for healthcare. Um, you know, as if healthcare is like skiing. If I could ski for free, then... as if we don't have this in all the other countries, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's completely. <laughs> you know, I mean, Americans love to not pay attention to the experience of other countries, um, and even Sally, Sally Pipes is Canadian and clearly does not like the Canadian healthcare system for whatever reason. Um, you know, she restricts herself to the United States, Canada, and occasionally the UK. She has almost mm-hmm. nothing to say about the rest of the world. I thought that was kind of curious um, in her books and in what in her debate yesterday. Um, she's acting like an American, except she recognizes that Canada is a separate country. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I mean, even if there was some huge upsurge in demand, um, well, that might be an issue for financing and for costing out a, pro- a program. But maybe there'd be some benefit if more people could get health care. I mean, it, you know, are pe- people who just talk about the increase in demand, like uh, uh, Ken Thorpe or the Urban Institute when they're costing Medicare for all programs, um, maybe they should think about how if more people had access to health care, we might have a healthier population. You know, maybe people would live longer. Maybe there's some benefit to that. And of course, I mean, if there is increased demand, uh, if we pass a single payer, then of course that would mean that there are people right now who are currently not accessing not accessing healthcare that they actually need. Yeah, and uh, yeah. it seems like a problem that society needs to fix one way or the other. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, some somebody um, once said that economists know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that really <laughs> applies here. We know the cost of people going to the doctor more. But you know, what's the value? I mean, I estimate that as that maybe three ten percent of American deaths are associated with people not being able to access the healthcare system because of cost. That's three hundred thousand deaths per year. That's a lot of people. <laughs> you know, surely, as even as economists, we should think about that as something worthwhile. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I mean, one of the questions that I see repeated over and over again in debates and in uh, political debates between uh, for candidates is how do you plan to pay for a single payer healthcare system? And I almost never see questions like, how do you plan to address the 35 million people who don't have health insurance right now? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there is just like a very big cost focus. Um, yeah. Another question that or observation I just wanted to make about uh, last night's debate. 
Um, I feel like, you know, most conservatives, and, and Sally Pipes was no exception, attack Medicare for all by characterizing countries that have single-payer health care systems, um, as, as Pipes said last night, in a, quote, near constant state of crisis. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that that encompasses a couple of things. Uh, one of them is wait times, another is rationing. Can you give us an overview of the rationing argument that we're hearing? Because I I just I feel so confused actually when I hear about it because there's all this discussion about elective wait times and then it's sometimes mixed with like urgent care wait times and I just want to hear an overview of that. Yeah, well, the um, this comes out of the assumption that if we made healthcare less expensive at the point of service by eliminating copays and deductibles, everybody would rush in to see the doctor. And then we all love going to the doctor just for fun. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I love skiing, but I don't, even if it was free, I wouldn't ski all the time because I'd have to drive for hours to get to skiing. I mean, there are other costs associated with all sorts of things. Um, and going to the doctor is one of the more costly activities, regardless of the copay or the deductible, <laughs> you know? Um, but if everybody started going to the doctor, then, well, there may be a problem of how to accommodate those people. Now, I think they could be accommodated easily because doctors waste so much of their time dealing with that fragmented, inefficient insurance right. system. So that actually would free up the time that they would need. But apart from that, that's, that's where this wait time assumption is coming from. If you look at the data, though, we... The, United States has more wait times, even for people who mm. actually see the doctor. Um, mm. Only 43% of Americans can see a doctor that day or the next day. The average for the OECD, Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, is 57%. We're worse, we're way worse than average. We're one of the worst countries in the world in terms of ability to see a doctor quickly. Um, and that's not even counting all those who never even try because they don't have health insurance <laughs> or their health insurance has such a high copay that it's as if you had you didn't have it. Um, 33 percent of a America pandemic. It's not important to see a doctor. Quickly, yeah. Is it? I mean, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. But if in you, a timely you know, manner. Yeah. I mean, if you get to particulars, you can find things where the American healthcare system works well. Um, but those are only for the people who actually go in. So we're relatively good on, um, on cancer survival for people who actually get in to the system. Um, but people who die on the outside don't get counted in that. Um, mm -hmm. When you include the entire population, um, which is what you get when you look at life expectancy, um, either at age at birth or age one or age 50, um, we are way below most countries, um, as much as six years below where we should be given our level of spending. Um, we're comparable to a country like Chile, which is, I mean, a wonderful country. I don't mean to criticize Chile, but we're a lot richer than Chile. We should not be, mm -hmm. you know, doing that, um, that badly. Uh, so wait times, you can find things where, you know, you may be having more trouble getting in so quickly in a country like Britain or Canada, you know, but that's kind of cherry picking. We need global mm -hmm. statistics for the whole population um, and for the whole range of services. And on those global statistics, the U.S. is doing uh, relatively badly.
Well, we're having a, a rational discussion here um, about the merits of Medicare for All and the data and the science behind it. But what is it like to actually debate someone like Sally Pipes on this issue? Um, and like what I mean, uh, and I guess what we're asking here, I mean, I expect that when we get close to winning Medicare for All, um, we are going to see both from the healthcare industry, but also from these right wing in institutes, Koch brother type uh, organizations, they're going to throw money against this. We're going to see advertising. We're going to see mailers flooding people's uh, mailbox. Um, can you give us a little, uh, what was it like? What was the, uh, I imagine that the, the argument did not go in the same way that our conversation is going right now, where we have a back and forth about uh, reality. Um, what was that debate like? And what do you expect that the attack from the right is going to look like when it comes to that? Well, quite frankly, um, a couple weeks ago, I picked up her book, um, oh. False Premise, False Promise, <laughs> The Disastrous mm -hmm. Reality of Medicare for All. Um, mm -hmm. And I started reading it out in our garden where we're doing our COVID uh, social distancing um, and um, read the first chapter and thought, oh, wow, she's good. She could almost persuade me. Really? <laughs> you know, you know, and she does it with wonderful rhetoric, um, you mm -hmm. know, appearing to be comprehensive with her data, you know, which is all when you look closely, you know, is cherry picking isolated facts out of context. Mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, data uh, and stories, powerful stories, naming people. Um, when I was finishing my dissertation defense, uh, David Landis, the economic historian, uh, told me when you, when you write, use names, use people's names. That's what gets people care about people. So I'm reading and it's like, oh, that poor person, that poor person who had this horrible business happen. Um, you know, but it, again, just like the statistics, you know, it's out of context. I mean, you know, um, was this the only case like this? Was it because the government and the national medical authorities, the single payer agency screwed up? Was it a bureaucrat who made a mistake? Was it a doctor who made a mistake? Um, you know, was this actually policy that led to this bad outcome? Or was it an accident? And you have no idea. You, you know, her stories are powerful and she's a very good writer um, and mm -hmm. comes across um, persuasively because she seems to be telling this whole story by inserting these these um, these cherry picked facts and these powerful stories. Uh, so she's very good at what she does. And we certainly in the single payer community need to expect that we're going to get uh, this type of argument. Um, I'm assuming, you know, that she's not making any of these up. But knowing how Trump has done things, <laughs> I wouldn't put it past, you know, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt people to go beyond Sally Pipes. And if they don't have any stories, they'll just concoct them. I mean, like you remember Ron, no, no, Stephanie is way too young for this, but maybe Ben remembers uh, Ronald Reagan um, and his um, 
uh, welfare. How old do you think I am, Jerry? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, sorry. I'm old enough to remember. (laughs) Ronald Reagan, 1980, 84, you know, maybe it was 76, actually. Um, campaigning against this welfare queen in Chicago. Thank you very much. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So I'm showing my age. Um, the, uh, yes, yeah, but Reagan, um, and his, uh, welfare queen, you know, who supposedly Mm -hmm. used eight different names and 20 different social security numbers and pocketed hundreds of thousands of dollars from welfare. I mean, it turns out that the whole thing was, um, there's a grain of truth. There was a woman who filed for three different, you know, um, checks, whatever, and she got $2,000 that she should not have gotten following the rules of welfare. Um, not $200,000 a year for 10 years, like Reagan had said. Uh, so we should expect things like that. Um, you know, horror stories. Um, if they don't have enough, they'll make them up. Um, and they'll have... The, so that's one part of it. The other part that we should expect in this fear, uncertainty, and doubt thing is the uncertainty and doubt that... And this is a real problem because people are risk-averse, especially when you get to healthcare. And I think the worse the private insurance system treats people, the more scared people are about holding on to whatever little bit of security they're getting. You know, it, you know, instead of reacting to higher deductibles, higher co-pays, these networks, instead of reacting to those by saying, we need to just get rid of the system and get something better. A lot of people are like, well, I still have the chance to get to see a doctor within the next month. You know, that's at only a $50 or $75 copay, you know, so I need to hold on to my health insurance that I getting through work. Mm-hmm. Um, so whereas what you're talking about, what, or sorry, what we're talking about is a change in the system that's scary for people mm-hmm. who are already feeling stressed. Um, and then you add to it the job losses, which she actually mentions. I couldn't believe it. I, you know, you know, I was reading, it's my own book. I marked it up, Um, you know, and, you know, I was like, uh, you know, she says, well, the disruption will cost a million to two million jobs. Eh, Probably, according to my colleague, Bob Poland, who's really looked at this more carefully than I have, probably more like two million than one million, but that's okay. Um, Which was know. really ironic, considering that she had just sort of dismissed as unimportant the fact that three to five million people lost their health insurance during the pandemic. Only um, I was, and only through April. I, yes, <laughs> I was really surprised. That was such an interesting take. I thought it was going to be a more substantive take on that, but she just said, "Well, it's only it's only a couple million people." That's right. That's right. And besides, they could go on Medicaid. Uh, or Cobra. <laughs> oh, oh, Cobra. Right, right. But it's like, you know, um, is the private health insurance system a system of jobs? Federal job guarantees? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, why should we keep this bad system going just to provide jobs? I mean, let's just 
pay everybody, give them the money, but stay home and don't stop people from getting health care that they need, which is what, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, the private health insurance says 2 million jobs are all about. Um, so it's, but that will be a powerful argument. I mean, the most frequent, one of the most frequent questions I get is when talking about uh, Medicare for all is what happens to all the people working, um, running billing and insurance activities in hospitals, et cetera. Um, well, yeah, they'll lose their jobs. Um, uh, okay, so. Uh, so yeah. what about the question um, of rationing? Uh, Pipes brought this up last night that, you know, a lot of pharmaceuticals don't actually make it to the U.S. market because the single payer won't pay for them. And this means that uh, Americans would end up losing out on uh, groundbreaking, cutting edge drugs for cancer and other illnesses. Well, we already paid for them. <laughs> I mean, half of research and development is already funded in drug companies. And we're talking about a um, hundred million dollars or so in research and development, and half of that's paid for directly by the federal government, the NIH and the NSF. Most of the rest is not cutting-edge drugs. It's um, uh, it's greenlining, um, finding a new way to extend the patent of a drug, marketing, you know, adding an X to the name of something you know, which will involve millions of dollars in research and development to find out, well, would people like this X on the box? You know, you know redesigning the boxes, um, developing commercials. I mean, that's what, the, that's what the drug companies do. And there's good reasons for it. They don't invest in long-term projects because developing a new drug takes a long time. There's a lot of advanced research, and it may or may not work. It usually, usually it won't turn into anything. So as a result, the may, all the major breakthrough drugs, virtually all the effective antibiotics and most of the cancer treatments, my brother, my, my former brother-in-law uh, worked on this on, uh, as an oncologist at the Johns Hopkins in the late 1960s, um, involved in chemotherapy drugs uh, while he was in the US Navy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's where most of the research is done by government agencies. The MRI was developed by somebody at the Veterans Administration. And otherwise, I mean, yeah, there is a lot that's done in universities by researchers, but that's not done for money. I mean, look at Jonas Salk. He gave the Salk vaccine to the world to save lives. Um, so I'm not... I'm not particularly worried. I mean, and it's also wrong to say that the United States is the only place where this gets done. It is true that a lot of companies worldwide will base their research, their um, operations in the United States, but that's so that they can get in under the U.S. patent law, which is very generous to drug companies. It's not be, and, and also it's because we, we have such a great university system, um, including the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Um, so <laughs> totally he, unbiased opinion there. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, you want access to these people, but it's not as, you know, it doesn't have much to do with our pricing policies. Um, and there is a lot of great research that's done um, in other countries, you know, countries with single payer systems.
Yeah. I mean, after all, it's a free market uh, world, globalized world economy. So you could develop it in one place and you still got to sell it all over the place. Um, and, you I know, shudder even, to think what's yeah, going to yeah, with the coronavirus yeah. uh, vaccines. Yep. I mean, which are all being paid for by the U.S. and other countries. Exactly. <laughs> you know, um, and then they're going to want to sell it back to us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's another point here. It doesn't matter how available the drugs are if you can't afford them. So um, oncologists talk about um, financial toxicity um, in the high price of some um, uh, cancer drugs. You know, financial toxicity is the situation where people die because they can't afford the drug. So it doesn't matter that it's there if it's too expensive for people to use. Mm-hmm. Well, it's very, ex- uh, just as a final question, we, we don't get many economists on the podcast. So this is very exciting. Um, I guess I wanted to ask you in general, I mean, what, uh, I, I realize there's no total 100% consensus in the economics um, literature on anything probably related to healthcare, but there has been probably a large body of knowledge by now about why do markets work or not work when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to health insurance in particular, um, and the delivery of healthcare. Can you just give us kind of the 101 overview of like uh, healthcare economics for dummies about why Sally Pipes is wrong? (laughs) Well, um, as I said, it's a fantasy to think that you can have a free market um, in healthcare. And Kenneth Arrow, the founder of health economics, um, almost 60 years ago, wrote about this um, in one of the most widely cited articles in economics. Um, and it has to do with the uncertainty and information, what we call information asymmetries. Um, people don't know what sort of health problems they're going to have. If they do ha- run into a health problem, they don't know where to go. Um, so the providers... Um, have a huge um, monopoly power, a huge market power, because you know if you have a reputation as the right place to go, if you actually are the best doctor or the best hospitals, uh, like Mass General, then yeah, you could charge a really high price because you're selling something that's very valuable, um, uh, and people don't trust other places you know that's why mass general can charge four or five times as much for simple appendectomies that could be done in lots of other places just as well but they can still uh, they can charge four times as much for um an x-ray as cambridge hospital right across the charles um that's a somewhat old number uh it was told to me years ago by somebody who was the emergency department director at Cambridge Hospital. Um, uh, but Mass General can get away with it because well, that's the Mass General, so the place that people trust. So that's one problem. The second problem is the insurance industry. People, because of uncertainty, they, they want to buy insurance. Insurance can be a wonderful thing because it gives you security. You give up something now to have protection against something really horrible happening in the future. But the insurance company 
is not like my father's coffee company. My father wanted to sell more mm -hmm. coffee. So he tried to make better coffee at a lower price. The insurance company doesn't act that way. They know that a few people are going to account for most of their expenses, their medical losses, that's what they call it. The medical loss ratio is a share of spending that goes out the door for your health care. It really should be called the care ratio, but they want to keep the medical loss ratio down. They don't want to be spending money on your health care. The best way to do that is to not sell insurance to somebody who's going to need it. Mm -hmm. So we want insurance. We want everybody to have insurance because there are communicable diseases. So there's a public interest in it. Um, but the insurance companies aren't going to do it. And once they do find out that you're going to be a sick person, they try to get rid of you. <laughs> Rather than give you better quality care, they try to get, you, get rid of you. So what sort of free market is this where you try to sell less and where there are natural monopolies? So to yeah. talk about a free market is just, and I think what I just said, I think virtually all thinking economists, but I think most economists would agree. <laughs> Good qualification. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, there are some on the fringe, but I think most economists would agree with what I just said. It's just that they say there's a political problem and that's where they'll stop. Right. I, and I don't know what is the economic term for this, but I mean, the phenomenon of, you know, healthcare not being the same kind of good as anything else, because if you need a unit of healthcare to save your life, you can't really walk away from it. The price becomes sort of less of an object. I mean, highly, I feel like that's... Yeah, it's highly inelastic. Um, inelastic, right? The demand is highly <laughs> inelastic. You regret asking for the term now? Yeah. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I definitely learned that in Econ you know, 101 or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but it's uh, if the price goes up, you still try to get it. You know, mm -hmm. up until the point, like, mm -hmm. you know, that poor guy, Alex Smith, who I talk about in my book, um, you know, who died because he couldn't afford a few hundred dollars for insulin. I mean, mm -hmm. first of all, why is insulin so expensive? You know, since it was donated to the world by the scientists who developed it in Canada, mm -hmm. uh, Sally Pipes' country. I know she knew the names of the scientists. Um, mm -hmm. She's that much of a Canadian uh, mm -hmm. loyalist. Uh, but you know, why is it so expensive anyway? Um, and why couldn't, you know, a 27 year old um, get it? You know, but he died because he couldn't afford, yeah. you know, uh, he couldn't make it to the, uh, the next week. Yeah, and I think that really also illustrates going back to what we were talking about earlier about um, healthcare stories and the story, yeah. the kinds of stories that are rolled out uh, yes. by sort of like, conservative opponents of single payer, which to me, the arguments that she was bringing up, the stories that she were bringing up seemed like they easily could have been mistakes, whereas the stories that come out of um, the healthcare crisis in the United States always illustrate a structural or a policy problem. Um, you know, somebody who's diabetic, they die because the cost of insulin is yeah. uh, hundreds of dollars, and that's not a mistake, and that's, that's actually a policy that we've allowed to happen, so. Yes, yes. Yes, uh, we've created this system in this country. Um, and some years ago, I realized that I was going around telling people how much money we'd save if we did away with the health, if we moved to a Medicare for all system, we'd save $500 billion a year or something like that. Um, and I realized that I wasn't necessarily making a good argument. 
because those 500 million 500 billion dollars are 500 billion dollars of somebody's income or lots of somebody's and every time you talk about savings you're feeding that uncertainty and fear that fear uncertainty and doubt because people are thinking oh my god that could be my income you know um, maybe I work for an insurance company maybe I work for a hospital you know um, and uh, uh, maybe I have stock in the drug company or in the insurance company yeah. yeah. And yeah. there certainly are people who, you know, um, who have to be taken care of if you move to a Medicare for all system and you're doing those savings. Mm -hmm. But there's also just a lot of greedy profit making yes. middlemen who I would not shed a single tear for. Um, yes. And honestly, my very non-economics takeaway from your overview, Jerry, is that uh, a free market system in healthcare basically incentivizes the system to do all the things you would not want a healthcare system to do, yeah. <laughs> right? It's like, let's give less care to the people who need it the most and let's create drugs people don't need and sell it to them for prices they can't afford. Um, so I'm, I'm so grateful to have you on the program and thank you also for being out there and debating people like Sally Pipes. Um, and I think the, the takeaway that we are not going to be actually contending with real facts and data, but that we're going to be contending basically with kind of manipulative anecdotes and deceptive um, sort of either true or uh, misconstrued or totally made up stories is an important <laughs> one for us to take away as a movement. Um, so thank you so much. And I'm sure we will come up with an excuse to have you back on again soon. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Thank you. Have fun.